Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. I'm so honored and grateful to be with you guys tonight. Uh, Father Cam, thank you. Angela, thank you. And uh, yeah, it's always high praise when like a brother priest is like, I want you to come talk to my people. So I'm very grateful. So um, if this sucks, it's his fault. He brought me here. Okay, so. But here's the thing. This is like one of my favorite kinds of settings to give a talk to because uh, you didn't have to be here and you're here. And there's also booze, right? So like the drinks or the jokes are funnier the more you drink. And uh, the question and answer will get, you know, all the more saucy depending on how much you have. So it could get fun at the end. So um and I'm going to have wine at the end. So I'm having water now, and hopefully it'll stay water. But then it'll, it'll become wine. It'll be amazing. <laughs> so anyway, I'm very grateful to be with you guys tonight. I was, uh, before, be- just before we had the intro, I was over in, uh, um, the, by the uh, tabernacle in the church, and I was sitting there, I was talking to the Lord, and I was just saying, Lord, what, what's on your heart tonight for, uh, for these for these moms and dads, and I just, this instantaneous, overwhelming sense of the Lord's gratitude for you, um, the Lord being just filled with gratitude for you, that I think that there's, um, I mean, I, all of our vocations are hard. All of our vocations are an invitation to the cross. All of our vocations have struggles, and they are all an invitation from the Lord to die, and to die in a thousand ways. Uh, but man, oh man, I just, the more I just spend time with married couples, the more I, 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 I serve marriages, the more I just think, like, I think you guys got the raw end of the deal. I just think that, uh, <laughs> I, just, I just think the sacrifices you make are just extraordinary. And uh, yeah, I just hope tonight can bless you. And, and if for nothing else, it's a great date night, and uh, we should really pray for Tara downstairs doing all that babysitting. So um, don't give me any money, give her all the money. So <laughs> she's the real unsung hero of the night. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about me. So uh, I'm a priest uh, and uh, I, uh, I come from uh, St. Mary Parish in Hudson. I was ordained in 2016, but I was not, um, as they say, I wasn't really raised in a, in a my parents, they, they always hate when I say this, but it's true. I wasn't raised in a very devout or very good Catholic family. Here's, here's, uh, here's what I look like back uh, circa 95. Okay, so that's me and my little brother here, Scott, on uh, on the left here, this is um, uh, this was my hair that I used to have. Um, I would get my hair cut, and the ladies who used to cut my hair, they used to say, "You have such thick hair." Ah, liars. Anyway, so it all went away. So anyway, I was raised. We we weren't like a very devout family, right? So my parents were business owners, and they were products of their own generation. So they weren't really the faith was never really handed on to them. They never really personally appropriated it. Which meant that when I came along, it was like, well, what do we do with this kid? We got to get him baptized. Why do we got to get him baptized? Well, because our, our moms and our moms will be pissed if we don't get him baptized. <laughs> so I got, I was baptized. I didn't go to Catholic school. I, I, I was a PSR dropout after first communion. Um, I just put up too much of a fight, and uh, it just, it wasn't going to happen, right? So that just wasn't going to be a thing. There, the, we didn't really go to mass I, I, when I was a kid. We went maybe. We were, we were your traditional Christer family, right? We were your Christmas, Easter only, the CEOs. We were CEOs. And uh, I, I love to say now, I'm like, we were the family that took your pew at Christmas. <laughs> like, 
that's who we were. Like, those people, they're not here, right? So anyway, um, in fact, so like I, I have very few memories of church as a kid, but the, mo- the, most, the most striking memory I have of, of church as a, as a little boy, I was probably somewhere around eight or nine years old, and uh, so shortly after my first communion, right? So my dad, he would get in these fits where he's like, okay, we're going to go to Mass. It's like, why? I don't know. We're going. So he would t- I went to Mass with him one time, and at the time, St. Mary's in Hudson, um, you, they used to do communion that... That the, the people in the back row would go up first, instead of like how every other church does it. I, well, I don't know how you do it, but every other parish I've been to, the front row goes first, because that makes sense. Anyway, so the people furthest from the action, the furthest, like the least incentivized people, right? They sat in the back row. They got to go up to communion first, and we sat there because we go to communion. As my dad said, we'd go up to communion first, and then we would go out the door to St. Perkins uh, immediately for breakfast, so beating everyone in the parking lot. So we're sitting in the back of the church. We come to that moment of the Mass where Father Costello, God rest his soul, a uh, very just curmudgeon old Italian man, um, like you should be when you're Italian and old, right? So anyway, he, uh, he gets to that part where he elevates the chalice and the host, right? It's the elevation of the body and blood of our Lord, right? We're there at Calvary, and he's, behold the Lamb of God, right? I don't, to this day, I don't know what possessed my soul but from the back of the church I just let out as like loud as I could I just go from the back of the church and um true story and my dad just like smacks me to the ground right so and then I'm crying and like all of a sudden embarrassed and he's embarrassed he picks me up from like I don't know my pants or something and just we march out of the church and and guys I'm a priest now okay so I'm sure you're doing great. Like, whatever your baseline is, you're, you're raising them Catholic. You're doing great. So anyway, so uh, we went from there. Like, how do you get from there, you know, bad to ordained in 2016? Here's, this was, this was the morning of my ordination. Um, and notice my brother's hair was uh, is also thinning there. And um, I need to have an updated picture because he now is bald. Totally bald. Totally bald. We are uh, members of the Schultz family swim team now. So anyway... Um, how did this happen? How did this happen? The short answer to how this happened was I met Jesus. I met Jesus. There was a girl I had a huge crush on in my 11th grade year of high school. The Lord knows what, to, what bait to put on the hook, right? He knows what bait. The bait for me was a girl named Kristen who I was enamored with. Just thought she was lovely and beautiful. Anyway, she invited me to uh, the first planning meeting of the fall retreat, and uh, I had never been to a retreat. I didn't, I didn't know really what Jesus was, who Jesus was, what the Eucharist was. But I lied and said, I know all these things. And she was like, ah, oh, come with me. It'll be great. So that night, in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, I, I, all I know to say is I met the Lord. That's all I know to say. Like, like for, for you guys who are married, like at, at a certain point, you didn't know your spouse, right? And then at a certain point, like there was this collision course of providence. And all of a sudden, this person was there. And this person made like such a meteoric impact on your heart and your life that it just... It began to change the trajectory of your life. That's all I know to say about it. Like, I met the person of Jesus, and I just wanted to know who he was. Like, who, what are you? Like, what is this love? And, like, that's, that's how it started. I, like, Pope Benedict, he, he, has, he has said, um, it's, it's yet, I think, to get into the bloodstream of the church, but it's so powerful that being a Christian 
is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea. It's the result of an encounter with a person. Right? Just like being married is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea. Like You don't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to be married. Right? You're married because you met somebody. And this person made such an impact on you that it elicited from you this desire to give your whole life to this person. Like That's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who's met Jesus. A Christian is someone who's met Jesus. So, I met Jesus when I was 16, and how I got to the marble floor of St. John's in May of 2016 is a much longer and, and another talk for another night. But I, uh, I'm, I'm excited to speak to you tonight about what I want to talk about tonight, what the Lord gave me to talk about tonight. This is, as Angela said, this is the second Parents Rock talk that I've given, that first one. Where'd she go? Where are you, Angela? There you are. Okay. Um, yeah, that was, uh, the second one you went to was terrible after me, right? Is that how it went? All, okay, right, okay. I'm sure they were mostly downhill from there, right? Probably. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of parents, like you said, I think this is an emerging ministry because I think there's a lot of Catholic parents who are realizing just how increasingly challenging it is to do what you're trying to do, to raise your kids to be Catholic in this world. Like, like I mean, there's just so much against you right now. There's just so much against you. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I hope I'm not telling you anything you know, but I mean, like, I remember when Blue's Clues was just Blue's Clues, right? Like, but this is what we got now. Like, I remember it was just Steve getting the mail, you know, and now we got this. Or like, I, like before, like, like Coco Melon is woke now, and Paw Patrol's got non-binary characters. It's like, what? What? This is, the, this, is the, this is what you have to navigate as parents, and I, it's just so hard. So the, the title of this group, right, Raising Our Catholic Kids, let's just look at that for a second. Raising Our Catholic Kids. It, it used to be, it used to be enough, I guess you could say, it used to be enough to just presume if, like, you're born into a Catholic family, you were, grow up in the church, you receive the sacraments, uh, you meet somebody, you get married in the church, you have Catholic, you just have kids and like they're just going to stay Catholic. Because all the, all the surrounding institutions and, and cultural realities, they all were in reinforcing more or less the values of Catholicism, right? We, we used to live in a Christendom culture, right? Where everything was buttressed towards the good. Like all of those things are gone. All of those things are gone. The culture used to make it very easy for Catholic kids to stay Catholic. Like, this is just gone. This is not the reality anymore. This is our reality now. Like, this is, this is the reality now, right? It used to be blessed are the poor in spirit. Now it's blessed are the bored in spirit, right? This is, this is what we deal with. Like, I don't know how many of you have kids who are preparing for confirmation. I'm about to freak you out, but it's good to be a little sobered as you're drinking. Actually, keep drinking and... <laughs> Let me tell you some sobering things as you drink, right? So the latest research on confirmation stats in the United States is that within seven years, 85% of kids who are confirmed within seven years will have left the church. That's nearly nine out of ten. That's, that's abysmal. That's really, really bad. That's really, really, really bad. Like, I think the question is not how do we raise our Catholic kids R-O-C-K, right? I get the acronym. I don't think the question is, how do we raise our Catholic kids? I think the more pressing question is, right, how do we raise our kids Catholic? 
How do we raise our kids in such a way that they stay Catholic, that they want to be Catholic, that they fall in love with Jesus and want to adhere their lives to this person and this church? I think that's the question, right? That's the desire. And like, if that's the question you're asking, if that's the question that's brought you to this group tonight, if that's why you're here, then like, I hope, I mean, we have stuff to write with, and I'm glad, and I hope you maybe have some like, journals or something, because I have got, I have got the five steps for how you're going to keep your kids Catholic, and for three easy payments of $39.95, you can Venmo me. I will tell you all five. Sold! Sold! Nah, I'm just, obviously, it's not true. That's obviously not why I'm here. There's no easy solutions. There's no easy solutions. There's, it's, the, the faith is not like an, putting together a piece of Ikea furniture. There's not like, like follow these five steps and your kids are going to be Catholic. Like it's, it really is in some ways a deep mystery. Like there are families who I know that from all external appearances, everyone evaluating from the outside, there are families and couples who did all the quote-unquote right things. And their kids are gone. And then there's families who didn't do any of the right things. And their son becomes a priest. <laughs> like, in many ways, it's, it's a mystery. It's a mystery in some ways, which I don't say that to just make you, like, you know, wring your hands and be nervous. But the, the, a piece to take away, if you get nothing else out of this tonight, is that the Lord loves your kids more than you love your kids. Like, he wants them in heaven more than you want them in heaven. And I know you want them in heaven. And one of my favorite stories in the New Testament is the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that resurrection morning story, where the two disciples are, are walking in the wrong direction. They were supposed to stay in Jerusalem. Jesus said, stay in Jerusalem, wait for power to come on high, right? They're supposed to stay in Jerusalem. And they're walking to this city called Emmaus. They're walking in the wrong direction. And Jesus doesn't stop them at the gate leaving Jerusalem, say, where are you going? Nor does he, like, wait for them in Emmaus, tapping his foot, being like, you idiots, right? Like, no, I love how he comes alongside of them and walks with them, engages them, plays stupid, asks them questions like, what are you talking about? And I say, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened in these days? And I just picture Jesus being like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, what sort of things, Right? But then they get to Emmaus, and they settle to make camp, and, and he keeps walking. And they have to beckon him back. They say, no, stay with us, because it's getting dark. And so he stays with them. Like, it's that detail, that he was willing to walk farther in the wrong direction than they were. Like, he's got them. Like, the good shepherd never abandons the sheep. He's endlessly at all times, it's the first paragraph of the catechism, at all times and in all places, he draws close to man. At all times and all places, he's going to be reaching out to them. At all times and in all places, he's never going to give up on them. He's endlessly creative, trying to think of ways to bring them back if they wander. So I should tell you, in some ways, take a deep breath. Like, he's got it. He's got it. So... But what can we do, though, to kind of help them stay Catholic? That's the question. That's what I want to talk about tonight. So let's, let's, we can never pray too much, so let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we give this night to you, and we ask you, Lord, to send your Holy Spirit upon us, to use me, Lord, broken vessel that I am, to speak uh, your truth into our hearts, to set us on fire 
for the beauty of this faith, for the beauty of you, Jesus. And we entrust this night to you, Mary, Queen of heaven and earth, and our Mama, as we pray together, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to start with this dude right here. <laughs> Anybody know who this is? This is Pope St. Paul VI. Pope Paul VI. Pope Paul VI, this is, this is so insightful. He said this, that modern man, and for the sake of our conversation tonight, let's just say kids, teenagers, right? Kids, teenagers, he says, modern man listens more readily to witnesses than to teachers. And if they do listen to teachers, it's because they're first witnesses. I'll say that again. Modern man, kids, teenagers, listen more readily to witnesses than to teachers. And if they do listen to teachers, it's because they're first witnesses. So we're going to launch off tonight. I, I know so many parents, so many adults in the church, so many pastors, so many bishops, so many well-intentioned, well-meaning, faithful think that if we can just get kids to think the right things, if we can just get kids to have the right thoughts about the faith, to think clearly about the faith, if they know enough stuff, if we effectively communicate this to them, then they'll believe. Then they'll be sold. Right? I think this is part of what the, the, the we all knew, like the, that data came out from the Pew Research Forum about the, the, the Eucharistic faith in the heart of the church. It was abysmal. It was really bad. It was actually worse than what they reported. But like 75% of the faithful who come to Mass are like, oh, I don't know about that. Right? Like the bishops are like, crap we got to do something. What do we do? They're like, we should tell people about this, right? We should, we should teach more. We should teach more, right? And boy, we've been trying to teach. We've been trying to get content out there. We've been trying to communicate and, and get the message out. We've been trying so hard to tell people the information. we got like this whole industry of things. Right? we got form.org now. We've got, we're like, we're swimming in content. we got form. We've got Bishop Barron on YouTube, you've got Pints with Aquinas on YouTube. I mean, these huge, amazing, long interviews and things like that. You've got Ascension Press, you've got Augustine Institute, you've got a podcast like this one. It's a pretty good one. <laughs> Moving on. Um, shameless plug. We've got Father Mike Schmitz for crying out loud, right? we got Father Mike Schmitz, baby, right? We are, we have, we have never in the history of the church had more content, more abilities to communicate the church teaching to people. And we're still losing people. Like, we're losing them. We are losing them. We are losing them in droves, right? Your kids, our kids are just not buying it. We're missing something. We're, we're leaving something out. Back to Saint, or Pope Paul VI. Again, modern man listens more readily to witnesses than to teachers. Like, we really want to be teachers, but what we really need to do, what we really need in this church is to revolutionize our church to become a church of witnesses before we're a church of teachers. We've got to become witnesses. We've got to become witnesses. That's how the early church did it, right? That's how they did their thing. They, they had nothing. They didn't even have Father Mike Schmitz, right? They had nothing. They didn't have any seminaries. They didn't have any Augustine Institute. They didn't even have Augustine yet, Right? They didn't have any Gospels yet. How did they do it? How, how did the faith spread? 
when it was illegal to exist to be a Christian, where you were, like, you know how, like, on 4th of July, you go to the fireworks store and you buy, like, Roman candles? You pretend you're a wizard, right? Remember that, right? You know what a Roman candle was in history? It's when you were a Christian and you were tied to a pole in the city or nailed to a pole, doused in oil, and set on fire to illuminate the streets at night. That's what a Roman candle was. How did Christianity spread when that was the reality of the church for the first 300 years? How did it spread? It's because, it's because these men and women, they were witnesses. They saw something and they met somebody. And that kind of encounter changed them so much that they had such fire in their bellies that they said, we have to tell everybody about this. We have to tell everybody. Right? I love it in the book of Revelation, it's, we're, t- we're hearing about the defeat of Satan, the throwdown of the enemy in this world. And, they, and John says, they defeated him, meaning the Christians, they defeated him, the enemy, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They, they were witnesses. It wasn't the blood of Mike Schmitz, right? Or the word of Scott Hahn. It was the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. When, when you had your kids baptized, uh, either the priest or the deacon, one of the things they said to you is you were told that you were to be, you and your spouse were to be the first witnesses to the life of faith for your child. The first witnesses, the best witnesses. You remember that? Yeah? <laughs> Tell me you remember that. Okay, good. Some of you are like, no. Maybe this, is this wine yet? No? Okay, it's still water. All right. First witnesses. But this begs the question, witnesses of what? <laughs> witnesses of what? I'll put it this way. In a word, what does a heart look like? What does a person look like who's wildly in love with Jesus? What does a life look like that's surrendered to him, that, that is alive in the hope and the mercy that he alone brings? That's, that's what you're supposed to witness to. What does a life look like that's radiantly transformed by the love of Jesus and is alive because of the hope that he brings? Like, you were meant to be, and this is not to shame or condemn, like you were meant to be, you were supposed to look and act and sound like someone who's in love. Because ideas can impact us and they can influence us, but it's love that changes us. Like you who are spouses, you know this. It's love that changes you. It's love that determines things, right? You're supposed to act like and look like and sound like people who are in love with the Lord. And, and, and to look like that and sound like that and act like that, you need to be that. You need to be that. Like there's nothing more attractive than holiness. Like years ago, when, before, before she died, Mother Teresa, she was named... Time Magazine Most Beautiful Woman of the Year. Now, Lord, don't strike me, but if you were to look at Mother Teresa, some of you are like, I'm getting real uncomfortable. <laughs> like, she's not objectively beautiful, right? Like, just look at like, girl, you need some cream. There's a lot of, <laughs> you need some something. You could do something for that, right? Like, but why? Why was the world so enamored by her? Like, she was the most powerful woman 
when she was alive in many ways, certainly the most powerful woman in India, like, can anybody name a bishop from India in the 90s? No, <laughs> none of you, right? But we all know Mother Teresa because her life was radiant. Holiness is the most beautiful, most attractive thing. And holiness is nothing more than letting him love you deeply. Letting him get really close to your heart to let Jesus engage your heart. That's holiness. Let him in deep. That's it. This, this, is, this is the longest intro for a talk I've ever given. <laughs> so like, this is the long way to get to the point that I want to make tonight. I want to talk about your hearts. I want to talk about your hearts. I know I kind of pulled a fast one. I said Eucharistic awe and your kids' hearts. I really want to talk about your hearts. Because we've got to start with your hearts before we get to their hearts. Tonight's about your hearts. Because the fastest way to inspire Eucharistic awe and faith, right, which is Catholic faith, sacramental faith, Pope John Paul II called it Eucharistic amazement. The fastest way to do that for your children's hearts is to first let Jesus engage your heart and to begin to see how like all of your desires, the stuff of your heart is directly connected to the Eucharist. It's directly connected to the Eucharist. To put this another way, like th this talk is, is so much less about what you should do practically for them and so much more about what I want to invite you to let Jesus start doing for you. It's about, it's really is about you tonight. That's what this is. And I think a big part of where we're missing things, it's we, Jesus' questions in the Gospels are really, really significant. A great exercise maybe to consider doing for Lent is go through the Gospels and underline every question he asks and take every one of those questions to a time of prayer. Because those are questions he's asking you, right? Because we don't understand the significance of Jesus' first question, the Gospel of John, What's happened is nearly all of us Christians, modern Christians, we've become dualists. And this is what I mean by that. That we, we have this sort of bifurcation of our worlds. We have like our churchy faith, Jesus-y kind of world over here. And then we have like the, the, the rest of our life, our, our normal world with our cares and concerns and the things that we love and the things that excite us and the things that we're doing on the weekend when we're not at church, right? So like we have this like, we live in these two worlds. We're dualists. We're dualists. That's a problem. And, and what we know is like this world is really fun and engaging and this is kind of the, the world I live in. But like we know we really ought to have this world be also part of our world, right? Because like we don't want to go to hell, right? You know? <laughs> so like we look at Jesus and Jesus becomes like this, this ought. Like my, my good buddy, Father Ryan Mann, who's part of that podcast with me, right? Um, he puts it this way. He says, we all treat Jesus like broccoli, you must all love broccoli? I don't know. Do you love, what's, what's wrong with you? That's where you're all supposed to go. You're like, yeah, broccoli's the worst, right? Like, when you're, like, when you're a kid, no one likes broccoli when you're a kid, right? Like, I, maybe it's just me because I was a husky kid. I don't know. Broccoli, like, we all know, like, as you're growing up and you're like, I really should, like, eat healthier. I should do the things the doctors tell me to do. Like, you know that you should have broccoli, right? But no one, like, really likes broccoli. It's taken me a long time to, like, like broccoli and have it not just be drowned in cheddar cheese, you know, like, I will eat that vegetable, right? Rita's, like, very grateful, right? <laughs> Keep eating your broccoli. Okay, yeah. That's how we think of Jesus. We think of Jesus like broccoli, like he's something that we ought to have. Like, yeah, like you got the rest of your life, but yeah, you ought to have a little bit of Jesus, right? You ought, like, he, he ought to have that, right? Like, he's, he's not an ought. 
he's a, he's a lover. He's not an ought. He's a lover. And like, because we treat him like broccoli, because we treat him like an ought, like we miss, we miss who he is. The world wasn't flipped upside down because another ought showed up on the scene. It said, here's a list of things for you to do to be good. The world was flipped upside down because love, this unbelievable love entered the world. And it changed everything. It changed absolutely everything. Okay, so back, back to that point I was just making a moment ago. Does anybody actually know Jesus' first question that he, he asked humanity in the Gospel of John? It was the Gospel we had two Sundays ago, which I know you've all been praying about and remember deeply, so probably can't, right? Okay. I'll tell you, it wasn't this. It wasn't, hey, how much did you put in the basket last week? <laughs> that wasn't the first question. It wasn't like, hey, where were you last Sunday? <laughs> it wasn't, how come you're not wearing your WWJD bracelet? That's not, that was not his first question. I'm not wearing mine. I hope he's okay. Okay. The first question he asked was this from the Gospel of John. Again, we heard it in the Gospel two, two Sundays ago. You have the disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. These disciples of John the Baptist start following Jesus from a distance, and he turns and he looks at them, and he asks them, What do you seek? Other translations, What are you looking for? Or what do you desire? What do you desire? Please notice that the first time the Word made flesh, God himself asks a question in John's Gospel. It's a question about their hearts. He's engaging their hearts. He starts with desire. He starts with their longings. He starts with their, their questing, searching, thirsty, hungry hearts. He starts with their hearts. We often start with the head. We're just trying to bang information into the head. He starts with the heart. That's, this is where we're erring. This is what we're missing. Because the rest of the gospel, the rest of the gospel, and by the gospel I don't just mean the gospel of John, I mean the whole message. The rest of the gospel is an interplay between Jesus as the answer to the question and this question. What are you looking for? What are you seeking? What do you desire? He proposes himself as the answer to that question. I want you to pause for just a second. And, and we got cards on your table. I want you to grab one of these cards in front of you and grab a pen or just something to write with. Because I, I want you to, to humor me for a moment here and I want you to let Jesus actually engage you with this question right here, right now. In the quiet of your heart, pause. Jesus is asking you, what, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? What do you desire? Just take a second. Try and become aware of your heart. What's in there? What are the desires? And don't filter it. Don't airbrush it. And if you're sitting there right now thinking, like, I have no clue. <laughs> that doesn't mean that you're bad. Doesn't mean you're a bad disciple. Doesn't mean you're a bad parent. None of those things. When you're done, just eyes back up here for me so I know that you're ready. If you find it hard to answer that question, you're, you're, you're not alone. Mo modern Christians, modern men and women, we, we, we are, we've been conditioned by a culture who's been animated by an enemy um, 
to keep us very divorced from our hearts, to keep us very distanced from our hearts. The enemy doesn't want us to, to, to live in touch with our hearts. And, and like there really is an enemy. That's another talk for another night. But there really is an enemy. And, and he is hell-bent, quite literally, on distracting and divorcing us from our hearts. He's, he's very happy for us to let our faith simply be an intellectual thing. Because he knows that Jesus is after our hearts. He's after our hearts. Which, yes, includes our minds, includes our wills, but he's after our hearts. The enemy, the enemy wants us to be numbed. He wants us to be anesthetized. He wants us to be, like, he's fine. He's fine if we're heart, he's fine if we are going to Mass every day, but leaving our hearts out of it. Or, or keeping him out of our hearts. Even better. This is what he wants our world to be. And I think he's succeeding uh, dramatically. We, we don't know how to stay in touch with our hearts. We don't know how to feel. We don't, or maybe we've never even taught how to pay attention to our hearts. Pope, Pope Francis asked this not too long ago. He asked a group of young people, do, do all of you have a desiring heart? Like a heart that desires. Think and answer in the silence in your heart. Do you have a heart that desires or do you have a closed heart, a heart that is asleep, a heart that is anesthetized against the things of life? I, I, love, I love etymology, knowing where words come from and what words mean. And the, the, the word anesthetize, it literally means numb to beauty. I want to show you what numb to beauty looks like. This is what numb to beauty looks like. I took this picture, uh, I think this was at the Met in New York. These idiot kids in the museum surrounded by, <laughs> surrounded by beauty. And look at them, just numb to beauty. Two, two summers ago, I went to Oxford and uh, had a trip to London and, and spent some time in Westminster Cathedral and, uh, you know, where the, the Queen's funeral, the King's coronation, where that happened, right? Went there. And uh, while I was there, I, I snapped this picture of these two British kids sitting there on their phones. He caught me. <laughs> um, but do you know what they would have seen if they would have put their phones down and just looked up? This. That's what they would have seen. Like, what I want to do for like, the remainder of time that we have, I want to help the anesthesia kind of wear off to help you get in touch with your heart to recall the beauty that has touched you, the beauty that moves you. So I want to ask Jesus' question in a different way. And I want you to write some things down. I want you to write answers to these questions down. What, what is something beautiful that you love? Something that you love. Write it down. And it's not allowed to be a churchy thing or a religious thing. Like, it could, it could be, a, like, I love the beauty of a sunrise, or I love the, the beauty of Rory McIlroy's drive, right? It's so beautiful. I hate him. Um, I love the beauty of a perfectly crafted, old-fashioned cocktail, right? Like, write something down. What is something beautiful that you love? All right, I'm going to give you a few more, so we're going to move through these a little bit quickly. Write down the last time something or someone took your breath away. If you want bonus points, just say your wife. You, dear. Okay, here's the next one. Write down the last time you paused before something extraordinarily beautiful. Where you're going along and then something just like arrested you. 
These next two are fun. Write down a movie that you loved when you were 10 years old. That's fifth grade, <laughs> he, the celibate says to a group of parents. <laughs> Similar question here. Write down a song that you loved when you were 10 years old. Just answering the question about movies. Anybody want to share a movie that you loved when you were 10 years old? What was it? Billy Madison. Billy Madison. Okay. What else? Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Tommy Boy. Tommy Boy. I'm seeing a theme. Okay. What else? What's it? The Goonies. The Goonies. Anybody else? One or two more? Sand. Who said that? Sandlot. Give me one more. Grease. Yeah, girl. Yeah. Nah. Yeah. I love, I love Hook, Robin Williams. Mm, yeah. What was another one? Um, and he, these are, I, Robin Williams was very big in my own heart and my memory, but the movie Jack with Robin Williams? Yeah. Or Simon Birch? I want to get your tissues. I want to share a few more from my, own, from my own world and kind of why this matters, why this is not just like going down memory lane. So for, for me, some of the things that I love, uh, I'm, I mean, it, this, it's, it's good that we're doing this right now in like great, this is like the nastiest winter we've, I think, ever had. This is just the worst, like we need, be, we need to be reminded that spring is coming, okay? So like for me, I feel this every year. And I've just felt this more and more as I've gotten older. But I, there's just something distinct for me about spring. Like, I, this kid right here, I relate to this kid in ways that I can't even say. Like, I, I, I grieve when those, those daff, like, I love when they start, like, just pulling it up through the service. And, but it's like, you're, the, the flowers are going to go, right? I hate that the daffodils are gone, right? So, it happens to me every, every spring. I both love and hate springtime because of what it does to my heart. Like, look at this, okay? Just look at that. Look at that. These Japanese cherry blossoms. I love these trees, and I hate these trees. I love these trees, and I hate these trees. Why? Because, because of the beauty that comes and I hate them because it doesn't stay. It's just unspeakably beautiful. There's something about me every spring that's like, every tree gets dotted with these incredible little clusters of color and it's just like, oh, oh God, like please stay. Right, lilac blossoms. My grandma had these beautiful lilac bushes in her backyard that every year going over there, smelling it like, ah, oh, but then they shrivel and they go. They go. Like, I don't want... Like, when I'm honest about my heart with this, like, I don't want the beauty that moves me, the beauty that comes in, I don't want it to go. I don't want it to go. I don't want to live in a world where the beauty goes away. I want a beauty that is secure. I don't want people that I love to die. 
I don't want them to go away. I want to live in a world where people stay, where love stays, where beauty stays, where it doesn't fade. Like there, there are moments that happen for you and I. Like there are moments that we wish that we could hit the pause button on life and just make them last forever because in those moments there's something that gets stirred up, stirred up in us and it's like, like we're going along living our life and all of a sudden this thing bumbles up, this moment just happens and it's just like, oh, this. Like there's life and then there's life. There's something that bubbles up, like, in, and our heart is saying, I, yeah, I, this is what I, I want, something like this. And what we discover in those moments is this, like, in this beauty is, is a desire that says, I want this forever. I, I don't, I never want this to end. I want more of this. And like, it's, it's a cry for the infinite, if I can put it that way. It's a cry for the infinite. I don't want just a little bit of beauty. I want endless beauty. I don't want just a little bit of good. I want endless good. It's a cry for the infinite. It's the signature that God has put into our heart that says, you're made for a world of infinite beauty, infinite good. We're made for that world. We are meant to hunger and ache for another world. Like, again, just, just from my heart, just sharing with you tonight, like, I'm so blessed with so many great friends who have so many little ones, but like this is, this, it's these moments that really for me are the moments that I wish I could freeze. This is my one goddaughter, Rose. She's, I think, five or six months old in this picture. Like, I have this picture right next to where I pray my holy hours every morning. Like, it's moments like this. It's, <laughs> like, these moments come they're in fifth grade now, right? And you wish you could freeze it. You wish you could hold on to it. These moments that are just so good and so beautiful. And there's so much tenderness and so much just like this, Lord. I want this forever. I just, it, it, they come and they go, but we don't want them to go. We don't want them to go. Friends, if we never let our hearts be engaged and to feel our ache, to feel that cry for the infinite, we'll never grasp what it is that Jesus is offering me what he's offering you. Let's be clear about what he's offering. He, he says in a million ways, he says, I want to satisfy you. I want to satisfy you. He, he, he knows our hunger, so he becomes food. He knows our thirst, so he becomes drink. He's born in a city that's called House of Bread. He's laid in a manger. He's crying from the beginning. He's crying at the end. I thirst, I hunger. I thirst and hunger for you. I want to satisfy you. Come to me, he says, right? He says, I will feed you. Last Sunday in the gospel, he said, now is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. He is in his person, filling up the desires of our hearts. The Bible uses the phrase eternal life. It's a weird phrase. We think that just means we live forever. What it really means is it's, it's what we're looking for. It's this unknown thing that we're looking for. I want endless beauty, endless life, endless joy. 
And the thing is, he never promised in the gospel, he never promises that we would be satisfied perfectly in this life. He doesn't promise that. He says, right, at the Last Supper, he says, this, is, this is from John's gospel. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So you have sorrow now, but he, then he says this. Because he's talking about, he's, he's leaving them. I'm going to die. He says this, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Can you think of anything so secure that it can't be taken? Like any joy so secure that it can't be taken? No. We don't know what that could be. And he, he, here he is making this promise. I will give you a joy that is so secure that nobody and nothing can take it from you. He says, I will come back to you and take you to myself so that where I am, you also may be. And that's when your joy will be complete. That's when it will be lasting. So like in this life, what does he do? He's giving us a million billion little foretastes, like crumbs that fall from the banquet table of heaven, these little crumbs that come into our life, these little crumbs, these little moments that come, and they taste like heaven. Because they, they awaken in us this thing that says, yeah, I want this forever. I want, I want something like this forever. Why do we want that? Because it's this crumb that fell from the banquet table. But these moments, they don't last forever. The beauty doesn't last forever. He gives us these foretastes. He gives us this ache. He fires up our desires. And then he says, come to me. You won't be forever frustrated. You won't be forever frustrated. He, fe he feeds us with hope. Where? In the Eucharist. Like That's what it is. Thomas Aquinas, he wrote this beautiful prayer where he says the Eucharist is the pledge of future glory. It's the promise of future glory. It's the promise of the fulfillment. It's the food that's leading us home. I love this detail from the Old Testament. I know we've got to wrap up here soon, but I love this detail from the Old Testament that when the Israelites were going through the promised land, Right? They're going from slavery to freedom, heading to the promised land as a sign of our pilgrimage in this life, heading home to heaven. The Lord fed them with manna in the desert. Right? They're heading to the land that is flowing with milk and, who remembers? Honey. Right? The Israelites, they see the manna on the ground, they taste it, and it tasted of honey. Like the food that sustained them tasted like the destination. Like the Eucharist is the food of immortality. That's what it is. It's this foretaste. It's a foretaste. That's what we're looking for. Not just simply to live forever. We're looking for the fulfillment of our desires. Friends, here's the point. The point of Christianity is to not, it's, it's not to get you to like stop aching. Christianity is meant to intensify your ache to intensify your longing, to intensify your desiring. If you are numbed out and don't ache and don't desire and don't feel, you're in a bad way. Jesus wants to intensify your ache because he's saying, like, I'm not going to leave you here. This is what heaven tastes like. Keep going. I've defeated death. I'm going to come back for you and take you to myself. And on the way, I will feed you with the bread of immortality so that you have in you the life that death can't hold. 
It's astounding. Like, so like in these experiences, what am I talking about? Like Jesus, like, like you take this to him. Jesus, I had, I had so much fun with my daughter at Taylor Swift's concert, the Ares concert, Ares tour. I had so much fun there, Jesus. And I didn't want the night to end. It was so good. Jesus, take me to a place where joy like that doesn't end. Jesus, I was so moved by the beauty of that sunrise this morning. Take me to a place where beauty like that doesn't go away. Jesus, my son fell asleep in my arms and it was so tender and I, I hate that he's getting bigger. Take me to a place where tenderness like that, love like that, doesn't end, where it doesn't go away. Friends, like if you do this, like for yourself, you will have a heart that's now aimed at eternity. Like you're not going to be grasping frantically at all the things around you. Like you can receive these moments as a gift, and you can let them orient you towards heaven. And you bring that straight to the Eucharist. You bring that straight to the Eucharist. You bring that to Mass. You bring the Eras Tour concert with you to Mass. Jesus, I'm looking for something like that. That's what you're saying as you're walking up for communion. Jesus, that moment with my son at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I was so tired, but it was so beautiful. Lord, that's what I want forever. So what's the practical thing for your kids? It's this, that like, you have to start paying attention to the things that move their hearts. Like, you have to be a steward of their hearts. And I don't mean, like, you just simply have to protect them. I mean, you have to, like, blow on the tinder bundle of their hearts when their hearts are awakened. What is it that's awakening their hearts? Is it, like, what movies is it? Is it what music is it? Is it catching fireflies? Is it watching Power Rangers? Is it building Legos? Like, what is it that's moving their hearts, that's stirring their desire? And then you build the bridge between that and Jesus. Like, for a, like I, I, I get that every kid wants things to go on forever. I get it. But like for like a five-year-old who doesn't want to stop playing Legos, like, <laughs> you say something like, Jesus is Legos forever. <laughs> How else do you translate what heaven is to a five-year-old's heart? This thing that, that has most pierced you, that most animates you, that you most desire, do you know what you're actually... like? Now, of course, you're not just going to say, now listen, Johnny, what you're actually looking for is heaven. right? Like, but I think it's okay to say, you know, Jesus is Legos forever. Jesus is summer nights forever. Jesus is never having a bedtime. <laughs> like, the thing that your heart wants, and deeply. And then you say, that's why we go to church, to be with the one who takes us to forever. That's why you go to have in you forever. That's what the Eucharist is. It's the food of forever. Do you want that dessert more? Like, I'm sorry, it's gone. That's why we're going to go to Mass tomorrow.
because it's, it's dessert forever. Do you see what I'm saying? That like, Jesus can't just be an ought. It can't just be because he makes you good. Jesus is the one who's, who gave you those desires and who's going to fulfill those desires. And if you, as moms and dads, can begin to notice in your own hearts the things that are stirring and moving and like to not shut it down, to not get sad about it, but to say, Lord, this is, I want this and I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to bring it to Mass. To let Jesus be the connection between your heart and your hunger and the Eucharist, then you can start building that bridge and having those conversations at the appropriate times and the appropriate ways. Like, so the kids see that the things that, that's in their hearts, that's, that's, it's Jesus that they're looking for. It's heaven that you're looking for when you want another dessert. That's how we do this. That's how we, like, that's how we make our kids stay Catholic. If Jesus is directly connected to their hearts and their desires. And that begins with you. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, you promise to take us to forever. That you have defeated death. You've defeated death. Our hearts cry out and demand for the infinite, but we can't grant that to ourselves. And so in the resurrection, Jesus, we see that there is a love stronger than death. That you have promised us that you will come back to us and take us to yourself. You've promised us this supreme moment of satisfaction. You have promised us that our hearts and our desires are not insignificant, but they're going to be infinitized and superabundantly fulfilled. You are not the God of crumbs. You're the God of superabundance. Jesus, I ask you to send forth your Holy Spirit upon these parents that their hearts would be ever more awake and attentive to how you're moving them. Every moment, all those moments, that they would bring those to you, Jesus. And that in the Eucharist, you would give them the pledge of future glory. And friends, may Almighty God bless you now, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I think the most succinct way to answer that without giving you another talk. Um, <laughs> yeah, Tara's down there. Just yeah, Tara's. <laughs> she's like, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, I think so. The so John Paul II. I love one of the things that he said was call things by their proper name. Um, that it is it is improper to call. Um, like, it's just not true that anybody has two daddies. Nobody has two daddies. Like, every child that comes into the world is a result of a mommy and a daddy somewhere. Um, and uh, how... I think so much of it depends on, the, like, what age of the child we're talking about, what's the circumstance that elicited the question. Um, 
I just, I just think bringing it back to like the truth of the design that God had for family life, that every child comes, in, comes into the world I through the love. The oh, Siri's helping us. Um, <laughs> every child comes into, this is China's listening, um, <laughs> comes into existence through the love of a mommy and a daddy. Um, I just would start with that. And uh, there's just two, there, I know you want a very specific answer, but like, how old's the child? What are the circumstances? What do they know about that stuff yet? Um, I, as a general, I would, I would err on the side of, of, of more information than less, um, just simply because there's a multi-trillion dollar industry that in all ways, it un believable avenues and angles is trying to give a counter message um, about those realities that will find your children regardless. Um, so to, to err on the side of more truthful, factual information earlier on than just kind of abdicating that to someone else, because to, to not give them any information about it is to just invite someone else to tell them a lie. in our own circles, our own day-to-day, -day, our own workplaces, and things like that. So what would you speak to these people here about just wanting to have the courage to take those first steps in your small circle and not thinking too lofty? Like, how do you start, what kind of opportunities do you have to, to start being that witness that you're calling us to be in our just day-to-day? -day? Yeah. All right, let's start with the small concentric circle. Let's start with your family. Um, if God is love, he's the center of everything. Then love needs to be the center of everything. Your kids should witness, first and foremost, that you are utterly in love with each other. They, they, it should, you should have awkward, like, ah, oh, they're kissing again, right? Like... <laughs> I'm serious. I'm dead serious. I'm serious a heart attack, right? Like this is, it's, start there. They need to see that you prioritize each other before you prioritize them, right? Like be radically intentional about, about, about pursuing each other. Like let me start with this. This is kind of tangential, but the vows that you said, for better, for worse, for rich or poor, sickness and health, death to his part, all those things, what you were essentially saying to each other was, I'm not going anywhere. I'm all in. That's what you were saying. And what ends up happening, because life becomes life, and then hard things happen, and kids come along, and job, and all the things, and the cat has got diabetes, and ah. <laughs> like, 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 what ends up happening is that our heart starts saying, you're not going anywhere, so I don't have to do much anymore. Right? The inversion happens, and we stop pursuing each other. Right? So start with, like, witness to your kids that you are wildly in love with each other, and wildly in love with the Lord. And the way you do that for them, witnessing to the Lord at first, obviously, they should see you praying. Like John Paul II, he talked about the, the impact it made on him seeing his dad kneeling by the bedside. Like his dad wasn't like, are you watching, Carol? Okay, I'm going to pray now, right? Like, like no, he, he would just see his dad praying, right? Get your butts to confession, 
Okay? Get your butts. I almost used another word, but I'm recording this. Okay, get your butts to confession and go first. Go before your kids. At least once a month. At least the Pope went every week. Sometimes he went every day. Do you, do you think once a year is enough? I tell the kids in our school that going to confession is like flushing the toilet of your soul. How would your house smell if you flushed it once a year? <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. Witness to your kids. Witness to your kids the, that, like, that the value of receiving mercy. Like, go, please, for the love of God, go once a month and go before them. Dad goes first, then mom, then kids. Go first. Go. And then when I talk about, like, love should be the dominating factor. of your life. Like, people, people should know that you're someone who is in love with your spouse and with the Lord, right? So, like, when you talk about witnessing to people, like, there's, there's really bad ways to evangelize. And I just think that, like, like take, the, take the, the, the path of the Lord. Like, how did Jesus do things, right? So, like, Jesus didn't take John chapter 6, for example, right? when he throws down the bread of life discourse, this brutally hard teaching that people walked away from. He didn't come out of the gate with that. First, he entered into relationship with people, right? That he earned people's trust. The people became enamored with his kind, like, there's something about you, right? Like, be f- like just be okay with just being in relationship with people. And then when it comes to speaking hard truths, speak only hard truths into people's lives who you're actually willing to walk with. Because that's how we do truth and charity together. But like when it comes to like your 10-foot sphere of influence, like here, here's, here's the biggest thing that I would say. Like when you if be willing to say the name of Jesus in front of people, be willing to, to pray in public, and be willing to like if you ask, like be willing to ask people, coworkers, it's okay. Like you can ask them this. Like, is there anything I can pray for you about? It's a crazy question, right? Is there anything I pray for you about? Everyone has something that they, can, that they need prayers for. And then you do this crazy thing that no one's expecting. You say, okay, let's just pray right now. And I was like, what? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> just try it. Just try it. But especially say the name of Jesus out loud and often. Not just when you, like, stub your toe. Okay. Go to confession. You <laughs> sinners. No, I'm just kidding. Yes. Yeah. Okay. What's your advice to get people back to reconciliation? I think it's really a hard thing for a lot of Catholics to... Um, like, uh, like from a priest's perspective or from like a, a layman's perspective? Um, talk about the experience. Talk about the encounter. Talk about like... Like, what is it like to hear those? I think they're the most beautiful words that anybody can hear and that I have the privilege, that Father Cam and I have the privilege to say, I absolve you from your sins, right? Like, the reason why Jesus gave us the sacrament of confession was not because, like, you you know, our Protestant brothers and sisters, they say to us all the time about, like, well, like, why do you have to go to a priest to go to confession? I can just go to God directly. Yeah, but, like, that's not how he set it up. Like, the first gift of the resurrection was, here's the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he says, whoever sins you forgive are forgiven them. Whoever sins are retained are retained. Like, how would they know what sins to forgive if people weren't saying their sins to them, right? 
The first gift of the resurrection was the gift of the forgiveness of sins. He set it up that way. That was Jesus' idea. And the reason he did that is because it's not because he needed the update. He did it so that we could hear the forgiveness. I absolve you from your sins. Like, to hear those words, it's, it, is, it is the greatest words to hear. Like, tell people what it's like to hear those words. That's what I would say.